Good evening. A crisis at the border or not depends on who you talk to. New COVID strains pose a challenge to health care and New York. It's going to pot. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. First, the headlines. Israel appears to be locked in another political stalemate after its fourth inconclusive election in the past two years, as a little-known Islamic lawmaker emerged as the politician most likely to choose the country's next prime minister. Mansour Abbas said he was not in the pocket of anyone and vowed to listen to offers from anyone willing to talk to him. Once again, the nation appeared to be hopelessly divided. With nearly 90% of the votes counted Wednesday, both Netanyahu's supporters and his opponents appeared to fall short of securing the 61-seat majority in the parliament required to form a government. And the United Nations Human Rights Office confirmed remarks by independent U.N. expert Agnes Calamard in The Guardian, alleging a senior Saudi official had made a threat against her. The Guardian reported the official said Calamardi would be taken care of if she was not reined in following her investigation into the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi, a Washington Post columnist, was apparently murdered and dismembered in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul on orders of ruling prince Mohammed bin Salman. And in Washington today, the top Republican in the Senate blasted a sweeping election reform bill passed by the Democrat-led House of Representatives earlier this month as a partisan power grab. The shade comes as many Republican-controlled state legislators are exploring steps that voting rights advocates say would reduce turnout after record-setting participation in the November 2020 general election. One of the losers in November was former President Donald Trump, who falsely claimed his defeat was the result of widespread voter fraud. The House-passed bill faces an uphill battle in the 50-50 Senate, where Democrats hold the majority by virtue of Democratic Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote. But most legislation needs uh, pardon me, 60 votes to pass. And haunted by a mass shooting, killing 10 people at a Boulder supermarket, citizens of the mountainous state are wondering about the circumstances behind these mass casualty events. Although the Centennial State ranks eighth in mass shootings, it's in the same tier as major states like California and Florida. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the president is weighing his options on control measures, including an executive order. If we want it to be lasting, we need it to be legislation. He certainly believes that. But there are also executive actions under consideration that we will continue working through internally. And there's lots of levers you can take, obviously, as president and vice president. The high-profile slayings in Colorado include the massacre at Columbine High School, now accepted as the bloody beginning of a modern era of mass violence, and the Aurora shooting that brought terror from schools to a movie theater. And in migration news, with large numbers of migrants conveying to the southern border, hoping to win asylum in the United States from the effects of natural disasters, violence, repressive governments, hailing from a range of localities, including Central America, Haiti, and Africa, President Joe Biden announced today that Vice President Kamala Harris will lead the White House effort to tackle the migration challenge. It's not her full responsibility and job, but she's leading the effort because I think the best thing to do is to put someone who when he or she speaks, they don't have to wonder about, is that where the president is? When she speaks, she speaks for me, doesn't have to check with me, she knows what she's doing, and I hope we can move this along. But Well, thank you, Mr. President, and for having the confidence in me, and there's no question that this is a challenging situation. As the president has said, there are many factors that lead president to leave these countries. 
while we are clear that people should not come to the border now, we also understand that we will enforce the law and that we also, because we can chew gum and walk at the same time, must address the root causes. Vice President Kamala Harris. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans put their opposition to President Biden's border policy on full display today. Republicans blame the surge of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, including unaccompanied children, on Biden's decision to reverse former President Trump's policies to deport refugee seekers. Republican lawmakers have tried to pass at least five initiatives on the Senate floor, including a resolution labeling the border situation a crisis, a term Biden avoids only to be blocked by Democrats who control the Senate. Carasen, the Central American Resource Center, is located in Los Angeles. A founding member is Zochil Sanchez. She says the conditions at the border are tough, but not necessarily a crisis. Showing up to the border and asking for help or for refuge is a legal way to actually show up to the border. And of course, there are people who are crossing illegally. But what we were seeing was basically a metering system of hundreds of thousands of immigrants in a waiting line being told to wait their turn and come back um, for for the day that was right for them to come into the country. And then a lot of them being enlisted under MPP or the Remain in Mexico program, migrant protection protocols that were also started by the Trump administration. And more than 65,000 people were registered under that program. And now we're seeing the Biden administration try to transition out of some of those policies. They dissolved MPP and started trying to bring some asylum-seeking families in, um, at least under MPP. We know that more than 25 people have been let in, but the number's very low. Dozens of people have been let in, and now we're seeing the rise of unaccompanied minors um, showing up to the border to seek asylum. Is this a crisis, this rhetoric? Is this helpful, this rhetoric between Republicans and Democrats? Is it or is it not a crisis at the border? I think the rhetoric is not helpful. We have been seeing this mass wave of immigrants coming to the border, and specifically, I think, why... We're now labeling it more of a crisis. At this point, we're seeing this bottleneck, right, of people coming into the border, being presenting themselves, many of them being returned back. Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorgas, has been very clear about the escalation that they have taken to kind of close the border, to let people know that adults are going to be returned, to let people know that families are going to be returned or expelled from being able to enter the United States, and that there was going to be some sort of priority for unaccompanied minors only because our asylum laws tend to give them special designation as minors and we're seeing that hundreds are being processed but also there's actually hundreds who are being deported but we have to keep in mind that the last administration rule was no one is allowed to come in then the pandemic happened right so i think that the layer of the complexities of kind of levels of obstruction that happened under trump including the pandemic and that kind of transitioning into biden but having to recognize that the Biden administration is expelling people and is deporting people as well. And it's actually kind of metering the unaccompanied minors that are coming into the country as well. What's driving us? The global economic crisis that we're facing under this pandemic and how that is felt in specifically in the region of Central America, but it's not the only migrants that are coming into the border. Definitely a lot of Haitian folks, definitely a lot of African asylum seekers. A lot of Central American, but also a lot of Mexican people who are trying to seek asylum. The biggest thing right now is the economic fallout that has caused great desperation, great suffering. When it comes down to Central America, we have to remember that in November, two Category 4 hurricanes, one after the other, I mean, days apart, hit the same exact countries that we've been seeing these mass um, kind of waves of migration 
leaving since the 1980s for very different reasons back then. But I think now, very immediately, and especially with the first caravan we saw this year in January, where 9,000 Hondurans left and they were the first mass caravan, the immediate reasons was the devastation of the hurricane. People were dying from the pandemic and dying from natural um, causes by the disaster that happened. Do you have a way out of this for us? Absolutely. I think um, there are concrete things that the United States government can do, and a lot of it has to do with U.S. aid and the money that the United States is giving to these governments should be, I think, divested from security and military aid to infrastructure and medical kind of immediate needs for people to be able to have civilian response on the, in their country and on the militarized response to their immediate needs, such as food and shelter. And that's going to stop people from leaving. So Shil Sanchez is a founding member of the Central American Resource Center, CARASEN. She was born in the Central American nation of El Salvador. Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, were initiated in 2019. Under this program, individuals who arrived at the southwest border were returned to Mexico. The Biden administration has moved to open more than 10,000 new beds across the southwest in convention centers and former oil field camps. The White House notified Congress today it will open a new 3,000-person facility in San Antonio and a 1,400-person site at the San Diego Convention Center. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In New York, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul was at a a pop-up vaccination center in Chinatown today. The site will be run in collaboration with the state. The new site will operate Fridays and Saturdays at the historic Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association Community Center. Mayor Bill de Blasio had today's COVID indicators for the city. Number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report is 248 patients, confirmed positivity level of 54.09%, hospitalization rate 3.79 per 100,000. Number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 3,282. And number three, percentage of people testing positive citywide for COVID-19. Today's report on a seven-day rolling average, 6.36%. Mayor de Blasio, despite the good news, declining infection and hospitalization rates, schools reopening and state workers heading into the office in the weeks to come, Some politicians say the city is moving too fast. New York City Public Advocate Jumani Williams and New York City Council Member Mark Levine are calling on the city and state to delay the decision to reopen the city. With infectious disease expert Dr. Gounder, they lay out an alarming picture of the risks posed by COVID-19 variants. Linda Perry reports. New York physician epidemiologist Dr. Celine Gounder, a member of the Biden-Harris COVID-19 Advisory Board, has a message for New Yorkers. She says we need to be more patient before we reopen. She says we have the spread of COVID-19 variants, the B117 from the UK, which has been shown to be more infectious and more deadly. It prompted the UK to shut down in the winter and represents about 20 to 30 percent of cases of COVID across the country. It's quite common, she says, in New York City. She also says that we have our own homegrown variant, the B1. 
variant, which seems to have emerged out of the Washington Heights area, which is now the predominant strain in New York City, and it appears to be a more infectious strain. She also warns about the Brazil and South African strains of the virus. In Brazil, the P1 and the South African strain, the B1351, seem to evade our immune responses to natural infection. People are being reinfected, and there's a trend towards becoming more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. Dr. Gounder. This is important because if you allow the virus to continue to spread, when it spreads from person to person, every time it does so, it has the opportunity to mutate. And so if you already have variants that are relatively more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity and you can continue to allow those to spread, you may well find yourself in a place where they become fully resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. So we're quite concerned about that scenario. And so when we say we're trying to protect our vaccines, uh, in the meantime, while we're trying, you know, trying to get people vaccinated, um, what we're really, what we really mean by that is we want to quash transmission until people are protected with the current vaccines so that vaccine evading variants do not emerge. Dr. Gounder points to northwestern Brazil, the city of Manaus. 75% in the city were infected during the early time of the pandemic, and many thought a second wave was impossible. But the P1 variant caused a massive emergence of the cases, so people were not immune after the first infection. This resulted in hospitals being overrun, they ran out of oxygen, and had to build vertical graves in their cemeteries because bodies were piling up. The variant, she says are very real threats that need to be taken seriously. In terms of our um, case rates in, in this country, we have been at a plateau for a while now, which is also highly concerning. Whenever we or other countries have found themselves in a plateau, inevitably that has been followed by a resurgence, not cases going back down again. And this is precisely the pattern uh, that has been seen in Europe most recently. I mentioned uh, the UK having to reinstitute strict measures over the winter holidays. That has been followed by France and Italy, where the B117 UK variant has spread. Uh, and most recently, Germany has announced a five-day lockdown over the Easter holiday uh, to address uh, this resurgence. So we have, in general, in the U.S., trended about three to four weeks behind the Europeans in terms of our resurgences. And so we are very concerned that we are on the verge of, of our own. Dr. Gounder says this is not the time for reopening when we are on the verge of another potential surge with more infectious variants of the virus surging. So it's sort of like uh, taking your foot off the brake before you've put the car in the park. We need to go just a little bit longer, get all of the especially high-risk people vaccinated, which is your elderly and your people with chronic medical conditions, and those who are in occupations where they're at especially high risk of being exposed and infected. And once, once we can get there, we're in a much better position to relax our, our various different public health measures. But in the meantime, the measures that really concern me the most are the fact that people are not consistently masking as they had been earlier in the pandemic. Masks are your best personal protection at this point in time until you can be vaccinated uh, and until the, the vast majority of us can be vaccinated. And then in terms of uh, reopening restaurants, indoor dining, bars, gyms, 
this is highly concerning because we have seen over the course of the pandemic that these are the highest risk locations for spread to occur. Uh, I'm also concerned about the reopening of, of large gatherings like weddings. Again, th- these have been super spreader events. Regarding schools, according to the infectious disease expert, there hasn't been much spread of the virus. It's been, by and large, adult to adult. Dr. Gounder says as long as there are basic protections in place, such as masking, reasonable ventilation, testing, that's been able to control the spread, a return to in-person learning, she says, is safe. But there needs to be pause in some of the other activities for another month or two. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. And in more government news, Governor Andrew Cuomo held a briefing today updating the state's ongoing COVID-19 response, along with state budget negotiations and priorities. The New York state budget is due April 1st. The governor announced that New York crossed the milestone of 8 million vaccine doses administered statewide and reinforced his emphasis on equity in the vaccination process. Cuomo also said today he's obsessed with the state's budget process as well as with fighting COVID. But when it comes to the budget, he says the top priority is legalizing marijuana, also known as cannabis, muggles, Mary Jane, weed, pot, smoke, and at least a hundred other names. We have passed the point of legalized cannabis. It's in New Jersey. It's in Massachusetts. To say we're going to stop it is not an option. It is here. The only question is, do we regulate it here? Do we gather the revenue here? Or do we have people driving to New Jersey, which is right there, or to Massachusetts if you're in the northern part of the state? But it is here. Uh, This year, we have to get it done. Uh, And getting it done by the time the budget is passed is essential. We are close, but we've been close before. Uh, This is getting it over the goal line. Governor Andrew Cuomo, among the governor's other top priorities are public safety and police reform. He's ordered localities to come up with policing reform plans by the start of April, rebuilding New York's infrastructure, universal broadband access, rent relief, nursing home reforms, and funding what he says is a $2.6 billion budget gap. And in breaking news, New York officials this afternoon apparently reached an agreement to legalize cannabis products for adult use and allow residents to maintain a limited number of marijuana plants in their homes. A final bill could be voted on by state lawmakers as early as next week. Lawmakers on Wednesday afternoon were finalizing the bill's language. The agreement reached by lawmakers includes stipulations that would encourage small businesses to be able to set up shop. The agreement also includes a social equity fund that's meant to divert some of the revenue generated by marijuana sales to job placement and after-school programs. The New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance is Melissa Moore. She says the bill is a foregone conclusion and marks far-reaching changes in America's attitudes towards drugs. It's really about the sponsors and the folks within the three-way negotiations really wanting to get every detail right. And so they're, from what I understand, down to the last few sentences in terms of being able to craft the the deal around what legalization will look like. But it's being based on the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, which you know we've supported for years that the Start Smart Coalition across New York has been rallying for and, and pushing 
for many years now. Um, so, of course, you know, waiting to see that final language. But my understanding is that uh, what's being negotiated right now um, tracks very closely with what advocates have been calling for. What will this brave new world of legal marijuana in New York State, I mean, the land of the Rockefeller drug laws? For far too long, there's been a tremendous amount of hypocrisy around marijuana enforcement in New York and a ridiculous degree of structural racism and just straight up racist policy making and enforcing. We'll be turning the page, but we can't just act as though that didn't happen in New York. It's not enough to just turn to the next page in the book and say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. There really has to be restitution for the communities that have been devastated by decades of racist policy and racist enforcement. What we've been calling for within the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act is community reinvestment is actually ensuring that there is a lockbox of a percentage of the cannabis tax revenue, a significant amount that would go back to the communities that have been the ones bearing the brunt of this policy and this enforcement for so long, and that are also now bearing the brunt of COVID on top of that and the additional economic vulnerability that comes along with these compounding factors. Will the average marijuana smoker be able to grow their own marijuana plants in their house? The legislature won out on that one. It sounds from um, some statements that Senator Kruger has made and the Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes that there will be provisions allowing for home cultivation um, and making sure that people won't face um, you know, penalties for being able to grow you know, the strains that work for them, especially for patients. That's really important from an access and affordability standpoint, um, but that other New Yorkers would be able to avail themselves of that as well and to be able to grow in a, in a safe and secure location. There's been a lot of moves now towards copying other states as far as legalizing psychedelics, mushrooms. I don't know of other, which is already taking place in a lot of different places around the country. And, and of course, people are looking towards Oregon, which is just legalized small amounts of all drugs. The drug war has failed at its purported purpose, but unfortunately has been far too effective in terms of providing the justification that law enforcement has used to target communities of color and especially low-income communities all across New York and the rest of the country as well. It's important to note that New York is in the middle of an overdose crisis right now that has been going on for years and years. We've lost tens of thousands of New Yorkers just under the time that Governor Cuomo has been in office. And that's ramped up even more. The, the overdose rates have skyrocketed during the pandemic. And so we're clear that the approach that so far has been taken to, to deal with substance use and this criminalization approach that touches people from the criminal legal system, but also so many other facets of people's life. The fact that somebody can be blocked out from being able to access stable housing or decent employment or have opportunities for higher education can have their family torn apart because of child welfare allegations alone, not even anything demonstrable. I think all points to the fact that the drug war has really contaminated so many aspects of people's lives. Are we going to change that aspect of it where it's just poisoned the entire justice yeah. system? With the DA in Boston announcing just, I think, a few days ago that there was contamination and there there were faulty drug tests in like tens of thousands of cases there that would be implicated under that. And they're going to be now under review. It's clear that there are ramifications far beyond 
just the drug policy realm and well into the rest of the criminal legal space and so many other aspects of people's lives as well. There are administrative systems that need to make real deep changes based on this because the drug war has contaminated those very systems to their core as well. Melissa Moore is New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Meanwhile, in Washington, strict federal anti-marijuana laws forced several aides to resign from the Biden administration after revealing their past use of the dank herb. Today, Press Secretary Saki said the White House had no other choice. What we tried to do as an administration was work with the security service who actually makes these determinations about suitability for serving in government. In the past, and I served in the Obama-Biden administration, the rules were actually far more stringent. So that isn't about anyone's personal point of view. It's about working through the process, the history, and modernizing and taking steps to address the fact that marijuana is legal in a number of states across the country. It is still illegal federally, right? We know that. There were, as I noted, I think in our comments, last week, five individuals who are no longer employed at the White House, a number of them, there were other uh, security uh, issues that were raised. And that's an unfortunate conclusion, of course. But what we tried to do is enable additional members of the team who would ha- not have been able to continue serving in past administrations to continue serving by updating our policy in coordination with the security service. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki earlier today. And in more city news, more children will now have access to New York City's 3K preschool program. Mayor de Blasio and school's chancellor, Maisha Ross Porter, welcomed kids with elbow bumps to Phil's Academy Preparatory School on Tilden Avenue this morning. But it was the staff and parents who were the most excited to see them, learning that their facility is now able to offer free preschool for three-year-olds in September. The mayor made the announcement official at his news briefing today. Today, I am really, really pleased to say that uh, our next great wave of early child education, 3K, we started 3K a few years ago. We started in just a few districts. We started where there was some of the greatest need in New York City, in the South Bronx and in Brownsville. We said, we're going to build this out. One day, our dream, one day our dream was that 3K, early child education for our three-year-olds, could follow the same path as pre-K. One day we said the day will come when 3K is in every district in New York City, 32 school districts. We dreamed that one day we could be able to have 3K in all of them. Well, today the dream comes true. Mayor de Blasio. And that's on the news for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.